Are you ready to challenge your rhetoric? Today is Friday, June 17th. My name is Sherry Roberts, and I'm your host on Challenging the Rhetoric. Welcome to the show. Howdy and hello. I'm glad to have you listening once again. Tonight we're going to begin a serious discussion on cults. In fact, over the next several shows, we're going to have many conversations on this topic. It's no secret that I've repeatedly made claims that what we're experiencing right now in this country is a new series of modern cults. The January armed takeover of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge outside of Burns, Oregon by the Bundys and their followers is really a perfect example, and it's an example I'm going to be using to make some comparisons in the ongoing presentation, uh, so to speak, that I'm going to be giving you here in the next few days and, and weeks. But in order for us to understand the present, we really need to also take a look at the past and how it relates because history repeats itself. Nearly 40 years ago, on November 18th, 1978, Olivia Newton-John's number two hit single, Hopelessly Devoted to You, which was made famous in the movie Grease, played on radio stations across the country. And on that same day in Guyana, a 3,213-mile flight away, 913 people were showing they too were hopelessly devoted. However, their devotion was to People's Temple leader, James Warren Jim Jones. And they showed that devotion by drinking cyanide-laced, grape-flavored Flavor-Aid. The children, many at gunpoint, are the ones that drank first. youngsters a lot of pleasure with Kool-Aid. You know it's pure and good. It has the Parents Magazine seal. And it's so thrifty. A five-cent package makes two full quarts. Just add Kool-Aid to water with ice, add some sugar, and stir. For the very best drink you ever made. Be sure that the envelope says Kool-Aid. Of the 913 who ultimately perished that day, 131 were children under 10 years old. More than a third of that number, 365 of those who died, were 20 years old or younger. That's a whole lot of young people. That's, that's a, a generation in the making there that we have now missed in, the, in this, what would be the future of that time. And until the horrific events that happened on September 11, 2001, in the United States, those murder-suicides at Jonestown had been considered the largest loss of life due to an intentional act. And although it was the knockoff brand Flavor Aid, the term drinking the Kool Aid, it's become a part of pop culture language. And many, many people say it, having no idea where it even came from. That's a little bit scary. Today, if someone disagrees with you or you them, one of you, of course, must be drinking the Kool-Aid. And now the cyber Kool-Aid, whether you're doing the drinking or the pouring, it just seems to be the beverage of choice. 
and not just by many, but by most and many people unwittingly and even unknowingly. And that's going to be part of the conversation that, that we begin this evening. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> Excuse me, but is this an unknown unknown? Uh, I'm not. Several unknowns, and I'm, I'm just wondering I'm not if this going, is an unknown I'm not going to say which it is. So that's what tonight's show is all about. Cults past and present, and the rise of technology's influence and power in cultic groups, because technology is maybe even the most important change that has no it's not maybe it is the most important thing that has changed with regards to cults and how they form and how they operate but before i dive into it all here are the particulars to help you engage with me tonight during each live broadcast you can interact on the facebook page at facebook.com forward slash challenging the rhetoric dot news and you can find me on twitter at ctr newsfeed the hashtags for this show is ctr Oregon Standoff, Bundy Ranch, and Colts, and all the stories I cover are available on the website at challengingtherhetoric.news. You can chat with us in the chat room, interact, ask questions. If you have a question, please find Sue Shugarts in the chat room. She is the social media manager for CTR. She's also the chat room moderator for the live shows. She's going to make sure that I see your question, and if I can, I will answer it. You can find the chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash challenging the rhetoric with Sherry Roberts. That's spelled C-H-E-R-I. Click on show number 34. The chat room will appear beneath the slider. If you're already on the page and you don't see it, just hit refresh and scroll down. It should be there. If it's not, it's not me. It's Blog Talk Radio. Remember, this is a dialogue, not a debate. There will be zero personal attacks or over-aggression or any kind of trolling tolerated at all in the chat room or in any calls that I may or may not take uh, during this show. If you're listening to an archive, obviously there is no live chat and no possibility of calling in. Anyhow, let's just jump into it. There are countless cults, past and present. There are also myriad types of cults, from apocalyptic cults to political cults or religious cults and so many more. I mean, I could sit here and name them, but it would take the whole show to name all the different kinds of cults that there are, and technology is changing this. There is no demographic or socioeconomic threshold that is immune to the potential influence of a cult or make you incapable of cult-like behavior. Technology has only exacerbated these issues, and as I keep uh, more than hinting at here, we're going to keep talking about tech and its influence, its impact. Jim Jones's rainbow family of followers were of many races and also socioeconomic structures. That's important as we get further into some of the other cults, including the modern cults. In the days before the Jonestown mass suicide or mass murders, four other People's Temple members were also killed in the Guyanese capital of Georgetown. Congressman Leo Ryan, who had traveled to Guyana to investigate what was going on, was also killed. And I'd like to share an audio clip from a Discovery Channel documentary about cults. In the following clip, cult leader Jim Jones talks to Congressman Ryan, noting more politicians will be coming. And then he gives his orders to drink the Kool-Aid. At a remote airstrip in a South American jungle, Congressman Leo J. Ryan has just become the only U.S. congressman ever to die in the line of duty, a victim of cult violence. By ordering the death of a U.S. congressman, Jim Jones has sealed the fate of People's Temple. Rather than face punishment for his crimes, 
he chooses death for himself and everyone in Jonestown. My opinion is that we be kind to children and be kind to seniors and take the portion like they used to take in ancient Greece and step over quietly because we are not committing suicide. It's a revolutionary act. We can't go back. They won't leave us alone. They're now going back to tell more lies, which means more congressmen. And there's no way, no way we can survive. It wasn't long after Jones spoke those words that the world heard the news of 913 tragic deaths. Jones knew his gig was up after the congressman Ryan killing, so he selfishly ordered his followers to drink a killer potion to end their lives for his cause. Unlike Jones himself, the only crime most of his followers had ever committed was a crime of ignorance, or belief, or of following a leader to hell without a ticket back. Recently, someone else followed a leader to their death. On January 26, 2016, Robert Lavoie Finnicum jumped out of his pickup truck after running a felony traffic stop and trying to bypass a roadblock. After exiting his vehicle, he reached for his 9mm that was cradled in a homemade inner pocket. He too knew his gig was up. Now Finnicum, like others, had pledged to lose his life, if need be, for what he truly believed was a righteous cause, Bundy's cause. He stated time and again that he would not be taken alive or spend time in prison. Finnegan was the only person who lost their life as a result of what we call the Oregon standoff. And of the 26 who are charged and are awaiting trial, they're all alive, but some may forever lose their freedom. And for what noble cause? Let's hear standoff leader Amon Bundy in his own words tell us how he came to the conclusion that he needed to intervene in Oregon on behalf of the Hammond family. The overwhelming urge of which he describes is the fire in the belly that he passed on to Lavoie Finnegan and the others. Whether he really believed it himself, that it was really his divine calling, whether he's just saying that or not, others believed him, others surely did, and others still do. Now I want to give you my story about how I got involved. I had recently moved, uh, been moved to Idaho six months ago, and um, found out little pieces about the Hammonds just from uh, articles that people would say and this and that, but I didn't know much about them. And my dad kept worrying about the Hammonds. And my dad kept worrying about the Hammonds. And my dad kept worrying about the Hammonds. He would say, Aaron, what do you know about the Hammonds? I just feel that, that what's happening to, what happened to us is happening to them. And I'm worried about him. And I'd say every time, I don't know much about him, Dad. And I'd kind of put it off. I felt that there was enough. Our family was fighting hard enough that they were, that we were, we had enough battles to fight that we didn't need to go fight somebody else's battles. And then one Monday night, I laid on my bed, getting ready to go to bed. I'm tired after a long day of work. And a message came on my phone. And I looked at it, and it was a message, an article, another article about the Hammonds. And immediately, this this urge, this overwhelming urge came upon me to find out about the Hammonds. And I could not sleep, so I studied all through the night. And this 
motivation to find out about the Hammonds, to learn more. And I read every article I could read. I read part of the court proceedings and, and everything I could get my hands on, uh, I read through the night. And then that next morning, I felt this urge again, this desire to begin to write. I knew I was supposed to write something. And so, but my emotion about the Hammonds after I saw what was happening and found that they were, what was happening to them was the same thing that happened to us. So my emotions were clouding my thoughts and I was trying to get my thoughts straight so I could rewrite. And I got on my knees and I asked the Lord and said, Lord, if you want me to write something, then please help me clear my mind and show me what I should write. And that's what happened. In my bed I start to pray And tell God all about my day I woke up in my little bed And put my head upon my head In a short period of time my mind was clear And I was able to write And I wrote that letter to uh, individuals and to government officials and that was the first one and during that letter I began to understand how the Lord felt about the Hammonds I began to understand about how the Lord how the Lord felt about Harney County and about this country and I I clearly understood that the Lord was not pleased with what was happening to the Hammonds and that and that um, what was happening to them if it was not corrected would be a type and a shadow of what would happen to the rest of the people across this country. And also, that if we allowed the Hammonds to continue to be punished, there would be accountability. And those are the things that I felt very clearly and, and tried to articulate and uh, sent it. And then once I got the letter written, I felt this desire, this urge to go to Burns and go to the Hammonds Ranch. And I got myself prepared. I told my wife that I needed to go. I was probably going to be gone for a couple days. I tried to help her understand what was going on and my thoughts and my feelings. And she could feel that they were right and that they were what I was supposed to do. And she supported me in that. But, but wait, who said? Daddy Cliven said? Did Cliven Bundy say something about the Hammonds in Oregon? But I thought Cliven Bunny was trying to claim his innocence of any wrongdoing in Oregon. Although he hasn't been charged outside of the Nevada indictment for the 2014 Bundy Ranch standoff, he should be. Ammon's defense has also held firm that Ammon himself did not call up the militia. His father Cliven says the same, but Ammon tells us a different story as he continues to explain how he came to come to Burns. And we began to communicate. I got the full story about everything. That's what I was able to make the facts and events about. Um... And I worked with them for uh, two weeks straight, uh, multiple hours each day, back and forth talking and getting these things straight, getting the story. Became very friendly with the Hammonds, and I learned and had gained a great love and respect for them. And then I also started bringing other groups, uh, um, coal, uh, excuse me, the coal, uh, excuse me, the coal, uh, excuse me, the. Pacific Patriot Net Network, some of the Oath Cooper groups, Oregon um, uh, Constitutional Guard, um, and into these conversations with the Hammonds about how we, we could stand and protect them. I am sure you noticed he almost said, 
that he called the Coalition of Western States. The question of how influential cows were in the whole scheme of things here is still up for debate, but it seems obvious. Lawmakers, law enforcers, and others in powerful positions played a heavy role in creating modern cult leader in Alan Bundy. While we're sure to talk more about Jim Jones and Jonestown, I want to jump from the 70s to the 80s. The cult known as the Rajneeshis initially dressed in shades of orange until evolving their garb to adopt shades of mostly red and pink. And when I first moved to Oregon, the very first time was back in 2000, I became very ill and ended up having surgery for melanoma, and I had to run to the pharmacy. Nobody was home. I was home alone, and I needed to go get a prescription. So I went. But when I returned home, my husband at the time, who was a native Oregonian, he took one look at me, dressed in bright red sweatpants and a pink hoodie, and said that I was really lucky that no one had tried to kill me while I was out because I looked like a Rajneeshi. Oh, no, she did. Oh, yes, she did. No, she did. Yes, she did. No, she did. Yes, she did, Peter. I just saw it. All right, take it easy. Well, until that day, I didn't even know what a Rajneeshi was, and I find that... Sadly ironic, considering I have studied cults since my teenage years, but I digress. So here's the deal. 32 years ago in 1984, while Rockwell's hit, Somebody's Watching Me blared its paranoid lyrics across the airwaves. In Oregon, those words couldn't have been more true, as another cult was making national headlines, and like Jonestown, they also broke some historical records. This time, however, the Colts compound was a 64,000-acre Oregon ranch that offered public tours, and no one was committing suicide or even thinking about it, contemplating it. Followers of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, later known as Osho, and his faithful servant Ma Anad Sheila were instead willing to die themselves. Amidst local tensions over the cult's presence and practices, Rajneesh's chief lieutenant Ma Anand Sheila told the world that they were willing to pay the price of their beliefs with their lives. As the Rajneeshis expanded their compound, there had been growing tension between cult leaders and local politicians. Just a year earlier, one of the cult's leaders, Ma'anan Sheila, hinted at potential violence. She said, quote, We are here in Oregon to stay at whatever the cost. If that means some blood is spilled, then this is the price we are prepared to pay. But it wasn't their lives anyone needed to be worried about. It was their own Rajneeshi leadership uh, that was planning and then using the Rajneeshi followers, executing the poisoning of at least 751 citizens with salmonella by tainting salad and salsa bars in 10 different fast food restaurants in the Dallas, Oregon. <laughs> The incident was the first and single largest bioterrorist attack in United States history. It is one of the only two confirmed terrorist uses of bioweapons to harm humans since 1945. The other, of course, was the 2001 anthrax attacks in the United States that unfolded on the heels of 9-11. This poisoning by the Rajneeshis was done mostly for strong-arm political purposes in the hope of incapacitating the voting population of the city so that their own candidates could win the 1984 Wasco elections. The Rajneshis also began driving around town in a jeep with a machine gun on the back of it. The plan was to overwhelm these towns by basically taking over their political systems. The Rajneshis had already taken over a nearby town called Antelope and renamed the town Rajnesh. So the huge influx of these red-clad cultists didn't sit that well with the local conservative small-towners in Oregon. 
The Rajneeshis, unlike those at Jonestown, were made of predominantly white followers over 30 years old. Most were well-educated, many came from middle to upper-class backgrounds, many had money. In December of 2015, Ammon Bundy, Ryan Payne, and others traveled to Burns, Oregon and set up the Harney County Committee of Safety. His website prominently states it is a governmental body established by the people in the absence of the ability of the existing government to provide for the needs and protection of civilized society. Sounds like they're trying to take over politics to me. Ammon and others intended to overthrow not just town and county politics, but the federal government itself over grazing rights based on a molested version of our country's constitution. And in his belief in being called upon by God to do so, right? So in fact, Ammon said he and they too would be staying in Burns for years, just like the Rajneeshi said. Here, you can hear him say it. So we have... Uh, basically taken over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. And this will begin, become a, a base place for uh, patriots from all over the country to come and to be housed here and, and live here. And we're planning on staying here for several years. And we're planning on staying here for several years. And we're planning on staying here for several years. But we're the, we're the, we're the point of the spear uh, that's going to bring confidence and strength to the rest of the people. And uh, we're calling people to come out here and stand. And it's really that simple. We have a place for you now. We have a place for you to come. We have a place for you to be, get to stay warm. We will have we have food uh, planned and prepared. Um, we need you to bring your arms. We need you to bring your arms. We need you to bring your arms. And we need you to come to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. Ammon and his attorneys and even his followers and family claim he never made a call to arms. I think we just heard him in that last clip loud and clear. And... I think the jury's going to hear him come Judgment Day. Your Honor? Your Honor. Your Honor. Your Honor. Your Honor? Your Honor. Your Honor, I object. Objection, Your Honor. Objection, Your Honor. I object. I object. I object. I object. I object, Your Honor. You know better, Mr. Berger. Your Honor, I have no objection. I have no objection, Your Honor. Your Honor? I protest. Not only did Bundy and his pals come out to a tree-hugging state, the state of Oregon, in a state where people really appreciate and enjoy their public lands, and they approve of how, for the most part, that they're managed. So there's strike one. But they also didn't look at the history of Oregon and see that not that long ago, we dealt with the cult of the Rajneeshis, who were doing similar things. Not again. Just like the Rajneeshis, the Bundy militia, these self-labeled patriots, use the brandishing of weaponry to intimidate, along with their much-stated promise to stay for years. They did this as they called for armed reinforcements with nearly every live stream or pre-recorded video put out by those at the refuge, and even those that weren't at the refuge. On January 26th, a night Finnegan was killed in what could only legitimately be ruled as suicide by cop, Ammon Bundy and several others were taken into custody and booked into the Inverness Jail in Multnomah County, Oregon. Upon their arrest, they, their families, and their supporters, some of whom have since also been arrested, became enraged by their detention and charges, even more so when another much more serious indictment came down, one for the locked and loaded face-off with BLM and other federal and local officials in Bunkerville, Nevada, at and outside of the Bundy Ranch in 2014. The behavior that followed was irreprehensible, and their ignorance of, of the law, of the world, it's really best displayed by Randy of South Park fame, so here we go. Come on, bring it on, Randy. This is America. I told you to shut up! 
Jesus, not again. This is for what? Arresting me for what? I'm not allowed to stand up for myself? I thought this was America. Huh? Isn't this America? I'm sorry, I thought this was America. Come on, let's go. I'm right here. Randy. Sit down before you get hurt. Mother God damn it. What, is this a communist country or something? I thought this is America. This is America. This is America. Oh my God, you gotta love South Park. What a great clip for a, a good comparison to some other Bundy Ranch supporters, Bundy Militia supporters. Now, these are supporters of Pete Santilli of the internet talk show, The Pete Santilli Show, who is a supporter of Bundy Ranch, of Clive and Am and Ryan and, and the gang. Pete Santilli is in jail. He is facing charges in both Oregon and Nevada for both of the armed standoffs. It is looking like Santilli is going to spend a considerable amount of time in prison when all is said and done, unless a miracle is pulled out of the hat. But I can tell you that there is going to be no miracle so long as his supporters, these Bundy militia supporters that are Santilliites, that's where they came from, this faction. And there's a whole lot of them. Santilli has a lot of listeners. As long as they continue doing what they're doing, they are ensuring that Pete Santilli stays behind bars. Here's where it might get a little confusing because I'm going to play a couple clips from a couple Santilli followers. Now, this is really, really important because these are followers of Santilli's. Santilli is a follower of the Bundys. Therefore, the people in these clips are Bundy followers and supporters because, of course, they support everything that Pete Santilli has done and will probably continue to do, whether from jail or if he's released by some miracle or whatever may happen. We don't know yet, and I'm not a fortune teller. However, in these clips, what you are going to hear is very reminiscent of that clip I just played of Randall from South Park. First up is going to be Eric Spitfire Wilkinson. Now, Spitfire and the Sentinel is his YouTube channel. He has a couple. There's Eric Spitfire and, and Spitfire and the Sentinel. And I don't necessarily think that he's a bad guy. I don't know the guy. But for whatever reason, he wants to not only attack people mercilessly online, but then have these very, very public outbursts. And in fact, he had an eight-hour rant against Pete Santilli, his employer of the time, and his hero against his lady, his co-host, Deb Jordan. You're fired. 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 He, he had accused her of misappropriating the donations that were coming into the Pete Santilli show. He had accused her of hiding, of not giving him or other YouTubers or anyone her time and keeping them up to date on what was going on, accused of just simply not being honest across the board. So a lot of things happened with Eric, and it got to the point where they kind of stopped attacking me and Les Zates, the Oregonian journalist, and J.J. McNabb, the Forbes journalist, and and other non-Bundy supporters or non-Santilli supporters, and started attacking each other. It got really, really bad. And it got so bad that Eric was... He he was suspended from YouTube, from, from live streaming. I believe he can now live stream again. But his utter meltdown is quite telling and sounds very much like Randall on South Park. 
So I get out of it or not, dude. I deleted the video fucking two weeks ago, dude. Fuck you, dude. Fuck you, monograph. Monograph. I deleted the video in question two weeks ago, and you know it. Now, you take the straight off, off my channel, <laughs> and you're a bald-faced fucking liar. You got that? You little motherfucker? Hmm? What the fuck you got to say about that, monograph? Hmm? I deleted the video two fucking weeks ago. And you're coming out here on the message board asking me, did you delete the video? Are you fucking serious? Oh, but you know what? Let's go out and be friends with these guys. Let's form unity. Let's Let form bonds. Fuck you, dude. You motherfucking shit. Bottom line is my channel is down. I cannot live stream on my channel because of Monograph. He gave me his word that if I took a certain video off, that he would remove the strike. Now, here we are, three weeks later, I removed the video, and the fucking strike's still there. Oh, I tried, don't get mad at me, I tried to remove it, and none of the info will come up to it. Oh, so now he's saying he can't remove the strike. You see what I'm saying? You know what? You want to trust all these motherfuckers? Fine. You know what? Go on those shows, form bonds with them, form unity. <laughs> Motherfucker took my channel down. I cannot live stream from my channel ever again because of monograph. And now he's making excuses why I can't. Fuck up, oh, motherfucker. Dude, I'm done. I'm sorry to come on the show. Seriously, I'm going to say some shit that's going to get your channel taken on too. Monograph, you piece of shit. You told me if I took that video off, you would remove this strike. Now you're telling me you can't. I can't because the video was deleted. No monograph. You Fuck you, dude. I'm coming to you. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. I'm coming to you. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. I'm coming to you. <laughs> Can't wait to meet you, bro. Here, let me put my camera on. So you can look in my fucking eyes, you little piece of shit. I'm coming to you, monograph. I'm going to come say hi. You took my fucking station down. I worked for six months to get 2,500 fucking subscribers. Well now, that was a hell of a rant. But that's just one rant of a whole lot of rants. Not just from Eric Spitfire, but from, like, this other guy I'm going to play a clip from. James Dow or James D. James Double Tap. He and Eric and many, many others. Not just YouTubers. Not just social media people, but people in general that are supporters of this, all this fringe that's going on, all these edges of extreme type people. It's the mentality that I am trying to give you a picture of because this is really what we're looking at here and it is quite disturbing. What's most important about what Eric Spitfire said was what he said at the end and that is that he had his YouTube channel for six months and had 2,500 subscribers. Now the truth of that is, is as I pointed out, Eric Spitfire worked for Pete Santilli. He began working for Pete Santilli about six months ago and the majority of his subscribers at 2,500 are people that have defaulted to him because Santilli's no longer on the air. So next up is this guy named James D. Double Tap, uh, this YouTube channel guy. And it is, this guy's really gone off his rocker as well. And he has threatened to quote unquote snipe people. And he has posted some really, really 
I already said disturbing once, but there is no other word for the types of things that he's posted. And he has gone on like a barrage of YouTube attack videos of a, a couple different people on YouTube and, and, and elsewhere. And I mean, it's all unnecessary stuff and I don't really understand the waste of time in it, but it's appropriate to show you again someone else that's you know flipped their lid over this whole issue let this be known let this be a warning this is a this is a warning to all you motherfuckers out there all you fake ass fucking truth channels i'm coming after you i'm sniping you know what i mean I'm serious as fuck but james didn't just threaten youtubers or other civilians no he went on in his own rant and he threatened law enforcement both local and federal and you young fucking punk you little wanna creek little punk ass cop said you were gonna have some fun with me let's have fun baby let's have fun i will knock your teeth down your throat you punk let's have fun show me where the fun's at because you ain't showed me yet little bitch and the first person to come through my door FBI whoever the fuck you are the first person to come through my door you're getting your teeth knocked down your throat before you shoot me or kill me or whatever serious as fuck man I told you guys yesterday you had no right to be here I don't care if you got a badge you got no right to be at my house you got no right to be on my property you got no right unconstitutional it's unconstitutional for you guys to even come in, in anywhere near me with threats or accusations or whatever, whatever the fuck, man. You say I'm hoarding weapons? I'm calling arms against the government and this and that? Get the fuck out of here. I have no weapons in this house. I got kitchen knives, which I will use if you motherfuckers break in my door. I will use whatever I got on hand. I got a baseball bat and my fists right here, which I will use before you guys fucking shoot me and kill me like you did Lavoy, like you did so many others the fuck out of here punks signing off what? Well, I a free country. God damn it. all right all kidding aside though the atmosphere that has followed the arrest has been vile and it's been weighted with a greater significance besides just random ugliness in the greater scheme of the problem we face today when dealing with cults because that is what we're dealing with Technology has brought a new dynamic to the table. So what exactly do I mean when I say that tech has an impact on cults today? Well, that's a really big answer that I could give you in a response, and it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense as a blanket statement. I want to go ahead and continue to roll it out in bits and pieces with the other stuff kind of married in as, as we've been doing so that, that you can fully understand that comprehending this problem because it's so complex is important for all of us. It's important for us as individual citizens in this country uh, that may or may not be susceptible to becoming part of a cult. It's also important for the law enforcement, local and federal law enforcement across the country to understand how technology has changed people. When we look at people and we want to say they're extremist or they're this or they're that, and not look at the fact that there is a bona fide cult happening, then they're not going to be quite as effective. They're just simply not going to be quite as effective in dealing with this problem. And why is that? Because when you're dealing with a cult follower, 
there's a certain aspect of mental health that kind of goes hand in hand with that. Now, I'm not saying that all cult members, cult followers, or even cult leaders are insane. I'm not saying that at all because there are plenty of perfectly sane people who become a part of a cult. And that is just for so many different reasons on a psychological level that, again, one podcast isn't going to cut it to explain it all to you. But what I can say is that all of you have been impacted by tech, and we all know that we now insult one another. We cause harm to one another in 140 characters or less. Why do we do that? Because we ourselves have become a part of a cult mentality surrounding the internet, surrounding social media predominantly. And there's no denying that. So tech's impact on cults is the same kind of impact it has on, on all of us, whether we're an individual or a business uh, you know, or a politician, it makes no difference. It gives us reach. It gives us a platform. Before, if we had something to say, we needed to take an ad out in the paper or a billboard or a radio ad. And who really has the money to do that, especially when you just want someone to go hug a tree with you or something, right? Today, we can make a post on Facebook or send a tweet out on Twitter and say, hey, I'm going to go hug a tree today. Come and join me. And people will. That simple. Even if they don't know you. Even if they hate trees because you got the provocateurs as well. And those are real. That's not just a paranoid hallucination of some activist out there of any side of any equation saying, oh, there's agent provocateurs. There really are. Some of them are paid. Some of them are just people that are on the other side of the equation that, that want their voice to be equally heard. But social media allows us to do that now. So for a cult, not only are they able to have their message out on a continuum, but they are now able to reach people beyond just a little classified ad in their town or their state now they're reaching people even outside of the country and they're able to grow and build quicker from that but that's just a really small part of the overall uh, impact of tech not only you know it provides all this reach that historically cults cult leaders didn't have before in the past certainly not in this way not in this extreme it's also done a lot of other things. And as I mentioned earlier, cults today can be leaderless. The internet itself can be the cult. It has a lot to do with that confirmation bias. It has a lot to do with us as individuals seeking and, and what we're seeking. The community that we all um, strive for and thrive with. And, and we are also lacking in this world. Humanity has completely gotten lost by the wayside with technology, with the internet. Because of that, we've lost community. And when you're already struggling with yourself and your family and your friends because of new ideas or beliefs that you may have, it's only natural that you would take to the internet to find other people of like mind. We're going to talk more on this. We're going to like really dissect the whole tech issue with regards to cults in each successive episode that I do on this in this series. And I hope that I've been able to explain a little bit to get you interested in this because I, I can't stress enough 
how profound technology's impact has been. And it's only going to get worse. We need to start looking at this now. We should have been looking at it last week, last month, last year, last decade. When the internet first came to us, we needed to take into consideration these things. And we haven't. It's one of those learning curves we learn as we go. But the problem is, is nobody's learning this very pivotal point. Family and other supporters of the co-defendants in both the Oregon and Nevada cases, they behave much like cult followers. In fact, I believe that some of them are indeed cult followers. Lashing out, threatening, and even committing crimes against anyone who does not agree with and or support their deluded cause. His own wife, Lisa Bundy, Ammon's own wife, Lisa Bundy, along with others, have publicly claimed that Ammon is Christ-like. For Christ's sake, he's Christ-like? Why? Because he's soft-spoken? Why? Because you didn't see him with an AR-15? Why is he Christ-like? Because he said God told him to do something? They hung him on a cross They hung him on a cross They hung him on a cross for me One day when I was lost They hung him Ammon Bundy's wife, his children, and other family members, also his followers, his supporters, they all treat him like a cult leader. They talk about him like a cult leader. They don't talk about him like a husband or a father or a brother. They talk about him like a cult leader. And the best example of that is a recent post by Brianna Bundy. Brianna is married to Ammon's brother, Mel. Mel is also facing charges. Now, Brianna is responding to a post made by John Ritzheimer, who is another co-defendant here in Oregon. John Ritzheimer was very upset and voiced his concerns about the fact that Mike Arnold of Arnold Law Firm, Ammon Bundy's Oregon attorney, had stepped aside for a new attorney to enter the picture. John Ritzheimer was concerned that that would change child dates, that maybe Ammon Bundy and the family were throwing the rest of them under the bus, and then some. It's an appropriate and legitimate concern. I, I personally found uh, no wrong in what he said. However, Brianna Bundy did. And her response is not a response of a mother, a daughter, a sister, or even a friend. It's the response of a cult follower talking about her leader. And here's what she had to say. Quote, you don't know Ammon, exclamation mark. To make the statement is pure ignorance, exclamation mark. Do not ever, all in caps, put his decisions to question, exclamation mark. He does not put his trust in the arm of the flesh. Keep your opinions to yourself. I will not have you pervert his name or decisions, exclamation mark. Shame on you. <laughs> You serious? Alrighty then. Apparently, Ammon's word, his beliefs, his claim to the secrets of supreme authority are the law. For how dare you, how dare anyone, including those who risked their physical lives like John Ritzheimer and those who lost his life like 
Lavoy Finicum. And those that are facing the loss of their freedom, uh, those 26 under indictment in Oregon, the 19 under indictment in Nevada, how dare they question him? How dare they question the Bundys? Unfortunately for Ammon, his braggart claims, the very ones that emboldened all of them that are sitting behind bars and then some, were little more than a cultic fantasy that he fed to his followers. But fortunately, the Hammond family at least had some semblance of sanity to have turned Ammon's help down, even as he angelically shamed them to the public, questioning their courage, using his soon-to-be-lost freedom as a bragging point and a testament of his righteousness. And I could go on and on about the list of things, the great violations that have been going on to the Hammonds. But they backed away because they were afraid, because they were intimidated by the U.S. Attorney's Office. And it was hurtful, but I could understand it. But it was very hard because I knew I'd experienced that if they just had the courage to stand, that they would uh, be able to be free like, like I am free and like my father and my brothers. Be able to be free like, like I am free and like my father and my brothers. Be able to be free like, like I am free and like my father and my brothers. Well, guess what? He, his dad, and his brothers are far from free. In fact, Ammon Cliven and Ryan Bundy, at the very least, may be spending the rest of their lives in prison. <laughs> I guess he spoke too soon, and God, whom he claims literally speaks to him, forgot to tell him what was to come, as he now sits in jail whining about flexi-pans and internet access. And, as the hearings continue, leading us closer to the trials, the antics of the Bundy followers, some of them, are reminiscent of those of the Manson followers, the Manson women to be precise, for example, the Sharp family's behavior compared to that of the Manson girls. Throughout the investigation, Manson's indoctrination of the girls remained strong. His was the only authority they recognized. Even when threatened with life imprisonment, they were unconcerned and remorseless. As the world watched, the Manson girls sung their way through a trial for murder. They were absolutely flip about it, as if nothing had happened, as if they were proud of what they had done, that there was no shame or no sense of wrong. Charles Manson and his cult followers committed a series of nine murders at four locations over a period of five weeks in the summer of 1969. During the Manson trial, the girls would sing joyously with no shame, remorse, or even care to the crimes that he and they committed. They sang as if in celebration. And again, of course, I have a clip. A dancing clown upon the wall is calling all to City Hall. Your grave is mine, oh, can't you see? The Shire family is often reported as being present at the hearings. Scott Clatt, who is known as Bundy Court Sketch, has done several uh, sketches that include them. But the Shire family is always singing and praying in the courthouse halls and out in the courthouse steps, blind to what they are supporting, and they are buoyed by the family of supporters. They are often cheerful and show zero understanding, let alone remorse, for the true actions of those that are awaiting trial. That is very similar. Now, although they themselves didn't commit crimes like the Manson women had, they are certainly participating and supporting the crimes of their Bundy 
brothers. In their abandonment from reality, the Manson followers were happy and willing to be led by their leader. They were led to murder, to self-mutilation, to prison. Here's another clip. This clip is going to talk about their willingness to give up their freedom. Throughout the trial, Manson's strangle-like hold on the girls became more and more visible. When he carves an X into his forehead, the girls mutilate their own faces. When he shaves his head in protest, the girls follow suit. But petty demonstrations weren't enough. Manson wouldn't be satisfied until they had sacrificed their freedom and their futures. Nearly every day since the initial arrest and the killing of Finnicum on social media, from Facebook and Twitter to YouTube and Pinterest and more, Bundy cult followers make blatant threats against judges, U.S. attorneys, the FBI, journalists like myself, big journalists, little journalists, it doesn't matter, and average citizens like you. They do it without care to any repercussions to themselves for doing so, nor the harm that they are causing the cases of those that they support and the causes that they say they support. The problem is more than an adulterated idea of one's First Amendment rights, and it has more to do with the cult mentality and the power of technology and the need to belong, especially for those who have never belonged. Tech can now recruit and it can attack. As I mentioned, no demographic is immune to the potential influence of a cult or incapable of cult-like behavior. There's a wealth of information and studies on cults available, but what has been lacking is any recognition that cults and cult leaders have changed and that textbook descriptions or explanations of cults and their leaders are no longer as accurate today as they were nearly 40, 25, or even just 20 years ago. As time has passed and technology has expanded, cults too have evolved. Most cult leaders no longer need a remote area in a place like Guyana to isolate their followers or themselves. Historically, because cults intentionally isolate followers in order to have control over what information a person is able to access, especially in relation to the cult and cause, is a little different now. Today, isolation occurs across the globe in the privacy of one's own home, and it permeates the rest of one's life. It does it via the internet and digital technology. The physical leader no longer even needs to be present in order to control the person or the message. Individuals today more often seek out and surround themselves with information that already confirms their ingrained biases. And some cults are leaderless. And I know that's a stretch for many to even consider, especially any scholars that are listening to this or people that have been in cults before or if you're new to even understanding anything about cults. Because for some, what we're seeing right now is more and more is that the Internet itself can be the cult leader. And that's something that we do need to understand. And we need to understand that in mass. And the current climate of political and socioeconomic woes and the increasing issues with mental health like depression, many people that are reading this or hearing this already feel isolated. And they use the Internet to seek out like-minded individuals. And those who are susceptible to cult mentality, even if you don't think you are, and even some who aren't, they're eventually going to find and select their own leader versus be recruited into something like cults of the past without ever realizing that they have done so. I know this to be true. It happened to me. I was a part of a cult. 
You gotta be kidding me. I told you that at the beginning. We're going to talk more about my experiences peppered in throughout all of this. I, I hope that you're interested in that. I do believe that I have a, a bit of a unique view in my reporting on this issue at the very least. So I want to talk a little bit more from the academic standpoint of some things. Mark Galliner, he's a professor of psychiatry at NYU. He says typical reasons why people join cults include a search for community and or a spiritual quest. I agree with that. Sociologists Stark and Bainbridge, they suggest that affiliation is a more useful concept than conversion, like being in a cult that you affiliate with it versus be converted into it as to what the process of joining a cult is. I think those are two different things. I think affiliation and conversion are two different things. I would challenge that conversion comes only after affiliation is sought and then assimilation takes place. Assimilation can initially be a facade for the purpose of gaining and then maintaining this affiliation that fulfills the need for the community, um, you know, that ego stroke or that personal stroke, whatever it is that, that you're getting what you need out of it. And, and it becomes like a drug. And we're going to talk about the addictive factor of this as well throughout the conversations. But conversion itself cannot genuinely take place until the actual belief in the affiliation's cause or stance becomes one's own. Assimilation and belonging are something that are sometimes enough without true conversion ever taking place. So you can assimilate, you can affiliate without ever actually converting. And all of these are different stages. And if you're in those places, then conversion would, would technically be the next step, but conversion isn't necessary to be a part of the problem. Visual range, abort cube on course zero, mark two, one, five, speed warp nine point. We are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. The study definition of a cult leader with its explanation of tactics is antiquated, and it does not address the invent of mass technology that connects people around the world at the push of a button or allows you to listen to someone like me just suddenly because I want to go on the air. And nor does it address the impact of that same technology and how a cult can operate. With enough contrived fear, control is easily manufactured by mass communication methods and dividing by ideology. Cult leaders can now achieve a more modern version of isolation without ever meeting their followers followers face-to-face or even knowing who their follower is. Psychologists and sociologists begin or they began abandoning brainwashing and mind control theories in relation to cults a few years after the Rajneeshi poisonings and they became more inclined to believe that coercive psychological mechanisms versus mind control could influence group members and they came to see that conversion to be or conversion into new movements principally as an act of a rational choice. Although not all cults are violent and many organizations should cause no worry at all, modern scholars like those at the University of Missouri School of Medicine are suggesting a new forensic term to classify non-psychotic behavior that leads to criminal acts of violence. That to me has a place in this story as it aligns with the rational choice theory of scholars in the past and cults uh, who do not who, who do participate in or threaten violence. The Bundy cult uh, par- participated in the intimidation of and the threat of violence, for sure. There's no question there. Uh, of course, we need to wait for a jury to decide, but at least those that were in Oregon can attest to this. In a Cypost article on the UM School of Medicine study in extreme, on extreme beliefs, Dr. Roman, an assistant professor of psychiatry and the lead author of the study, says, quote, Some people without psychotic mental illness feel so strongly about their beliefs that they take extreme actions. Current clinical study guides 
such as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, offer vague descriptions of alternative reasons a person may commit such crimes. Our suggested term for criminally violent behavior when psychosis can be ruled out is extreme overruled belief. The leader in Jonestown of the Rajneeshis and of the Manson murders, they all demonstrated many of the same traits of both schizophrenia and narcissism. Many of the harassing experiences award-winning Oregonian reporter Les Zaitz experienced while covering the Rajneeshi case in the 80s were repeated again this year uh, after the armed takeover of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, again just for his reporting. The biggest difference between then and now is the role technology, including social media, has played in this go-round. It is nearly unimaginable the terror and the power of the very wealthy Rajneeshis or any of them could have wrought had today's technology been available to them at the time. If you like what I'm doing here, if I've been able to connect some dots, open some eyes, and give you a few, oh, aha moments, then I am doing my job. There is a difference in what is happening today with cults than what happened in the past with cults. And until law enforcement and until the citizenry of this country understands that, we really cannot even begin to address the problem. In upcoming episodes, we're going to dissect who are the cult leaders and the cult followers in the Oregon and Nevada Bunny Ranch militia stories. We will even talk about one of them, or maybe more, who are both cult leaders and cult followers. Is that possible? I believe it is. I believe uh, that we are seeing that more now than if we ever saw it ever. We're going to get deeper into how technology has changed how a modern cult operates, including how they now isolate. We will discuss siege mentalities and systemic indoctrinization. We will discuss the difference between assimilation and conformity, as well as cognitive dissonance and more. I do this because I care. I was once a part of this cult. It's a real cult. So because I care, you need to know that caring means a lot of other things, including what we put out there for the world. And I do mean we. You may think you're innocent, but you're not. Words have power. And those who seek only to confirm their biases are the ones who stop seeking real truth and the ones who isolate themselves by ideology and technology, right or wrong, who become susceptible to those who have different agendas. And in doing so, they become the creators and the curators of the very propaganda they say they fight against. And their lockstep behind the leader, the leader of the month, is what will inevitably trip them up in the end. We saw that already happen. Propaganda goes both ways. It is up to each of you to take responsibility for the propaganda you participate in. If you missed part of tonight's show or any of the others, you can find the archives at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Challenging the Rhetoric with Sherry Roberts or on the website at challengingtherhetoric.news. If you like what I'm doing, please share my work. Share the shows, share the articles, share the pages. If you want to help sustain the show, the PayPal link is on the website at challengingtherhetoric.news. Every little bit is greatly appreciated. I won't mention your name if you don't want me to. I will be back for sure uh, here within the next couple of days with a new uh, segment to this series on Colts. And uh, I can't guarantee that it'll play at 6 p.m. on the Colt series. Uh, it's going to play whenever I upload it. Until then, be kind to one another. Be open to people and ideas that challenge your own rhetoric. Step away from those edges of extreme. I did. Get out of the ghetto of the cult. I did. And I am much, much happier, healthier. I am a better person for it. You can be too. That's it for me tonight. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.